No! You'll kill us all! For the last time, you idiot! It's not hydrogen! It's helium! And what about that are you still not getting exactly? Well, obviously the core concept, Lana. Hello and welcome once again to the Tech Weasel Theater of the Mind for Friday, May 1st, 2020. As always, I'm your host, Paul Huizinga, and today I'm going to tell you about how I flew in an honest-to-goodness Zeppelin. And uh, like a voyage in a Zeppelin, it's going to take a while to get there, but hopefully you'll enjoy the ride. First, some context. Zeppelin is kind of a generic term for lighter-than-aircraft with a rigid frame, in the same way that, like, Kleenex is a generic term for facial tissue or Jell-O is a generic term for horrible desserts nobody wants. Now, long before the Wright brothers' first successful flight, there were a number of European madmen who had taken the idea of attaching an engine and control surfaces to a balloon so that under perfect conditions, you could more or less navigate to where you wanted to go instead of just drifting with the wind. By the turn of the previous century, things had progressed to the point where rich Brazilian expat Alberto Santos Dumont, living in Paris at the time, would allegedly take his home-built airship, number six, on joyrides from his home to a local cafe. And I'm totally not making this up. And he would tie it up like a horse outside while he enjoyed lunch. Now, his design was successful enough that he won a 100,000-franc prize offered by a French oil industrialist for flying it from a Parisian park around the Eiffel Tower and then back again to the park in under a half an hour for a round-trip distance of just under seven miles. Now, Alberto was a good guy, too. He gave half the prize, which works out to over $500,000 in current terms, to his ground crew, and he donated the other half to the poor of Paris. Meanwhile, in Friedrichshafen, Germany, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin had formed a company financed about 40% from his personal wealth, and the rest through investors, to build experimental airships. Now, these were pretty different in design than Santos Dumont as well as most of the other airships that were around at the time. There's three basic ways to build one. There are non-rigid blimps, which don't have any solid frame at all, and they rely on the pressure inside the envelope to maintain their shape. Their gondolas, engines, and control surfaces are all attached to the outside of the envelope. Then there are semi-rigid airships, which have some sort of framework, but the actual part that contains the lifting gas holds its shape via pressure. Then finally, there are rigid airships, which is what our friend the Count was building. Rigid airships have a complete frame, and even when they aren't filled with lifting gas, they still maintain their outside shape. The lifting gas is usually contained in separate sealed cells inside the frame, and while it's a heavier way to build an airship, it has the advantage of being strong enough that you can build truly gargantuan flying vehicles. Now, the experimental Zeppelin LZ-1 wasn't something you could tie to the wrought iron fence at a cafe. It was 420 feet long, 38 and a half feet in diameter, and could carry multiple people. Unfortunately, after a few test flights, and beating the existing airship speed record with a whopping 17 mile per hour top speed, it succumbed to the airship's mortal enemy, bad weather. Now, an emergency landing damaged the LZ-1, and while it was repaired and flown twice more, the investors had lost interest, and Count Zeppelin had to scrap it and liquidate the company. He wasn't done, though. And by spending more of his own money, running a lottery, and mortgaging his wife's estate, he put together a second, and then a third, and then a fourth airship. Now, despite the fact that all but the LZ-3 were also destroyed, you guessed it, by bad weather, 
By this time, the German public had gotten excited about it, and enough donations came in to found Airship Construction Zeppelin Limited. I'm not even going to try and pronounce its proper German name. That company went on to manufacture more than 20 more Zeppelins before 1914, and despite many of them being destroyed by, you guessed it, bad weather, the Count was able to start the world's first passenger air travel service. And it really wasn't an airline in that they didn't do scheduled flights between different destinations. It was more like a pleasure cruise or a tour that started and stopped at the same place. But it was successful enough to allow increasingly sophisticated designs to be created. Then, of course, the Great War begins, and like every technology in the history of mankind with the potential to kill people, airships got drafted into the task of killing people. Now, both the German army and navy used zeppelins, as well as airships from Schutlands, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, the Navy mostly used them for scouting, looking for the English fleet, and reporting back via wireless, while the Army conducted offensive operations against targets like Antwerp, Warsaw, Paris, and eventually London. Now, while surprisingly large bomber aircraft were also used by Germany, airships all had a much greater payload and longer endurance. So in the process, they found out pretty quickly that Zeppelins were almost comically vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire at low altitude. So the tactics changed, and high-altitude night missions became the rule. The arms race between attack and defense went back and forth, and the British discovered that just poking holes in airships with uh, conventional machine gun bullets wasn't very effective in bringing them down. So they started using incendiary and tracer rounds, and in response, Zeppelins got armed with their own defensive machine guns to keep fighter aircraft away. When that proved to be less than effective, they built airships that could climb even higher, and would way above the reach of any of the fighters of the day and beyond the range of anti-aircraft artillery. Now, they'd routinely operate above 16,000 feet and can go at high, as high as 21,000 feet. Now, keep in mind, though, that this is before pressurization or even supplemental oxygen, so the crews were basically freezing and hypoxic the whole time. It also made hitting anything smaller than a city very difficult, Plus, if there were clouds, you might not even be able to do that. One partial solution was what they called a sky car, which was a little, like, one-man gondola on a rope that could be lowered down beneath the cloud deck with an observer in it. And he would use a telephone line back up to the Zeppelin to relay navigational and bombing instructions. And if that sounds terrifying for the guy who had to do that, it probably was. World War I was all about using technology in novel ways to terrify everyone involved. Over the course of the war, strategic bombing by Zeppelins didn't cause a huge amount of damage, with 557 people killed in Britain and another 1,358 injured. More than 5,000 bombs were dropped by 84 different airships, and 30 of them were shot, either shot down or lost in, you guessed it, weather-related accidents. But it did draw resources away from the front lines on the continent in order to defend against the raids, and it definitely had an effect on English morale. So Count von Zeppelin had died in 1917 at the age of 78, but Herr Dr. Hugo Eckener took over the business, and the war ends in 1918. Now, in the Treaty of Versailles, Germany is forbidden to build any more airships for military use, and they have to turn over the ones that remain as reparations to the Allies. Now, Eckener, who really believed in the potential of Zeppelins as commercial passenger aircraft, he directed the construction of two much smaller passenger airships right after the war, that actually went into regular service for a while, but by 1921 those were seized too. The Zeppelin company, forbidden to build any more Zeppelins, turned to making cookware to stay in business. Meanwhile in the U.S., the Navy decided there might be something to the whole scouting business using airships. 
So they built what was basically a direct copy of a late-war high-altitude Zeppelin with a few detail improvements, and they christened it the Shenandoah. It was 680 feet long, 79 feet 9 inches in diameter, and carried a crew of 25, and it maxed out at just under 70 miles per hour. Now, it was also the world's first helium-filled rigid airship, and at the time, it literally took all the helium in the world to fill it. That's not an exaggeration. Now, here's where we get into the difference between hydrogen, which is what all the Zeppelins used as a lifting gas, and helium. Hydrogen is the lightest element in the universe, and while helium comes in at number two on the periodic table and is still lighter than air, it's not as effective as a lifting gas. However, it's a noble gas, meaning that it's inert, and it's not waiting for an excuse to catch on fire like hydrogen is. Now, sane people who want to fill balloons, or in this case, airships, with something to make them float will obviously want to do it with helium instead of hydrogen, but through a quirk of geology, the United States is pretty much the only place where helium can be found in any large quantity. Not to go too far off the rails here, but helium is the product of radioactive decay of uranium, and it tends to collect in the same kind of underground pockets where natural gas is found. Hydrogen, on the other hand, is super easy to make, barely an inconvenience, through a number of different processes. Now, this makes it much less expensive to fill an enormous airship with it, and in the interwar period, the U.S. had a lock on pretty much all the helium being produced worldwide, and this will become important later. So, the Shenandoah goes into service in 1923, has a few run-ins with damage caused by, you guessed it, weather, but is generally successful enough to inspire the Navy to order a second airship, the USS Los Angeles. This would be the airship that essentially saved the Zeppelin Company, because instead of building it themselves, the Navy contracted out to Zeppelin to build it in Germany. This was good for the company, but bad for Germans, since they were forced to pay for it as war reparations to replace the captured Zeppelins that were sabotaged by their crews at the end of the war to prevent them from being used by the Allies. It was built to a design that Herr Eckener had intended for passenger use, and he personally commanded it during the transatlantic delivery flight to America in 1924. Since, of course, Germany had no helium, it was originally filled with hydrogen, but as soon as it arrived, the Navy literally siphoned off the helium from the Shenandoah to use in the Los Angeles. Now, eventually the ZR-1 would be refilled once enough, enough additional helium produced, and the two U.S. Navy airships served simultaneously for a time. In September 1925, though, Shenandoah was destroyed in Ohio during a flyover tour of the Midwest by, you guessed it, bad weather, leaving just the Los Angeles in service. Despite the crash, the Navy was still enthusiastic about the possibilities of airships, especially some experiments that they had tried with the Los Angeles that involved carrying gliders and aircraft and releasing them. So in 1926, the Navy authorized the construction of two new rigid airships, and the joint venture Goodyear Zeppelin Corporation won the contract. Yep, that's the very same Goodyear you're thinking of. These two airships, named the Akron and the Macon, were even bigger than the previous two, at 785 feet in length and 133 feet in diameter. They were designed to cruise at 60 plus miles per hour, and they topped out at about 80, and they had a range of over 6,800 miles at 12 miles per hour for best fuel economy. In addition to having a sky car for lowering an observer through the clouds, they both also had internal hangars and equipment to launch and recover small aircraft. Now, at first the idea was that the airships themselves would be used for reconnaissance, but fleet exercises proved that even with their own little fighters on board, they were still very vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire and fighters launched from the experimental aircraft carrier ships that were just entering service. 
So the onboard aircraft ended up being repurposed from fighters to scouts, ranging out as far as 200 miles away from their motherships, thanks to a big external fuel tank mounted in place of where the landing gear used to be. That kind of shows how successful the launch and recovery equipment was, because they were confident enough to use aircraft that had no way to land and had to either return to the airship or crash. To make a long story slightly less long, both the Akron and the Macon were destroyed in 1933 and 1935 respectively, with great loss of life due to, you guessed it, bad weather. Only the Los Angeles would manage to make it to retirement in 1932, and the Navy ended its experiment with Zeppelins, though they'd go on to make extensive use of non-rigid blimps made by Goodyear Zeppelin in the late interwar period to perform the same kind of scouting tasks at a much less ambitious level. Back in Germany, restrictions had eased a bit, and after a bunch of fundraising, Eckener was able to finally build the kind of airship he really wanted in 1928 with the Graf Zeppelin. Now, Graf means count in German, so the LZ-127 was named for the company founder. It was 776 feet long, 100 feet in diameter, and had a crew of 36. It was fast, with a 73-mile-per-hour cruising speed, and over the course of its career from 1928 to 1937, it traveled more than a million miles over 590 flights without being destroyed by, you guessed it, bad weather, even once, though on its first intercontinental flight in 1928 on the way to the U.S., it did sustain some significant damage passing through a mid-Atlantic storm. It could carry 24 passengers, and it made regular scheduled flights from Germany to Brazil. The Graf Zeppelin was easily the most successful rigid airship ever built and it turned out to be profitable carrying passengers and mail to the point where Eckener moved forward with plans for larger airships. Design work began for the LZ-129, which was intended from the start to use helium instead of hydrogen for greater safety. Then, of course, Hitler happened. When the Nazis came into power in 1933, they wanted to use Zeppelins as worldwide propaganda tools, and they ordered that the new swastika flag had to be added to the Graf Zeppelin. Now, Eckener hated Hitler and the Nazi party, and he was pretty outspoken about it. But because he was pretty much indispensable if they wanted more Zeppelins, they couldn't just get rid of him. To poke a metaphorical finger in Hitler's eye, Eckener obeyed the order to add the Nazi flag to the Graf Zeppelin, but he only did it on the left side. When the airship made an appearance at the Chicago World's Fair in late 1933 with Eckener in command, the Graf Zeppelin circled the fairgrounds clockwise so the fairgoers could only see the right-hand side. Despite Eckener being officially persona non grata to the Nazis, they still financed the completion of the LZ-129, which was now christened Hindenburg in honor of the former president of Germany, Paul von Hindenburg, who had died in 1934. It made its first flight in March of 1936, and it was the largest rigid airship ever built at just over 803 feet long and 135 feet in diameter. Now, it could carry a mix of between 40 and 60 crew and 50 to 70 passengers, and although the passenger cabins were quite small, the public passenger areas were lavish Art Deco showcases. Now, unlike the Graf Zeppelin, it was specifically designed with the strength and speed to make North Atlantic crossings on a regular basis, and it also joined Graf Zeppelin in passenger service to South America. It made a propaganda appearance at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, among many other sightseeing and propaganda flights in addition to the regularly scheduled service. Now, as I mentioned before, Eckener had designed the LZ-129 to use helium instead of hydrogen, but the U.S. had put an export ban on lifting gas in 1927, and with Hitler in power, there was no way the Zeppelin company was going to convince the U.S. to sell them the enormous amount of helium necessary. So they reluctantly used hydrogen instead, 
And that's not really as crazy as it sounds, though. In passenger service, hydrogen-filled Zeppelins had a perfect safety record with no fatalities or even injuries, so the feeling was that the risk could be managed. Well, we all know how that worked out. On the Hindenburg 63rd flight in early May 1937, the airship left Frankfurt, Germany, bound for Lakehurst, New Jersey, a journey that it had successfully completed before. There were 36 passengers and 61 crew aboard, and during the attempt to land, a fire whose origin is still the subject of debate started at the top rear of the airship's hull and quickly spread. And 30 seconds later, 13 passengers and 22 crew members, plus one ground crew member in the group tending the ropes, were dead, and the LZ-129, as well as the future of rigid airships, was destroyed. An interesting side note here. Hydrogen by itself burns with a nearly colorless and visible flame, and you can see this in videos of the space shuttle's hydrogen and oxygen-fueled main engines in operation. The famous film and still photos of the Hindenburg on fire show that what's visibly burning is the covering material on the hull, which was fabric that was impregnated with aluminum and doped with cellulose nitrate, which burns very energetically. Without that specific kind of fabric and waterproofing, the images of the crash would be a lot less dramatic. In any case, the loss of the Hindenburg also meant the retirement of the Graf Zeppelin. And at the time of the crash, it was on its way back to Germany from Brazil, and although the crew had heard about it via radio, the passengers weren't told until they were all safely on the ground two days later. The last of the rigid airships was the Hindenburg sister ship, LZ-130, dubbed Graf Zeppelin II. And that was completed in 1938, and it made its first flight in September of that year, filled with hydrogen like the LZ-129. Weirdly, in the U.S., President Roosevelt advocated selling Germany the helium necessary to switch the LZ-130 over after he got a personal visit from Eckener, who had vowed to never use hydrogen again in his airships. But Nazi Germany's ongoing shenanigans put a stop to that, and the ban on export remained. LZ-130 made only 30 flights and spent a total of just over 400 hours in the air, mostly for testing and propaganda purposes before being permanently grounded in August of 1939 due to the imminent start of hostilities in Europe. Both Graf Zeppelins plus the uncompleted framework of the even larger LZ-131 were scrapped in 1940 to provide material for the war effort, and that was the end of the rigid airship. Now, of course, lighter-than-aircraft were still around long after that. Everybody knows about the Goodyear blimps, and those started out as surplus Navy non-rigid airships that were repurposed for advertising with great success. The first was actually launched in 1925, and over the years they've had dozens of different individual blimps in a great variety of different classes. Now, in recent years, you may have seen that other companies have produced non-rigid ad advertising airships too, and some of them that are internally lit with translucent fabric envelopes that make them kind of look like UFOs from a distance in the night. This is where I finally come into the story. In the late 90s, Zeppelin Luft Shift Technik a company that considers itself a successor to the original Zeppelin Corporation, started building a semi-rigid airship called the Zeppelin NT, which stands for New Technology. Now Goodyear was impressed enough with them to order three to replace their aging blimps, and there are four more that have been produced for other uses in addition to those. The Zeppelin NT is a hybrid that uses an internal structure of composite trusses and longitudinal aluminum girders that support the cabin, the control surfaces, and the engines and propellers, but the shape of the outer helium-filled envelope is maintained by gas pressure. They're 246 feet long, 46 and a half feet in diameter, and they have a passenger capacity of 12 to 14 in airline-style seats. They can cruise at 71 miles an hour, and they max out at 77. 
The power comes from a trio of Lycoming six-cylinder engines like the kind you'd find in a Cessna, each producing about 200 horsepower. One of the really interesting things about the Zeppelin NT is that all three main propellers can swivel. There are two on stalks on the side of the hull, and one at the back, and they can be tilted to direct uh, thrust upward or downward, so the NT can take off vertically even if it's neutrally buoyant. It also has a weird little side-mounted variable pitch propeller in the tail, so it can spin around its axis if needed. Zeppelin Luftschiff Technik markets the NT for a lot of different purposes, and they emphasize its 24-hour flight endurance, quiet flight, ability to hover over one spot for long periods, and whatnot. A California company called Airship Ventures bought one in 2007, and by the end of 2008, after some initial flights in Europe, it was shipped to the U.S., christened Eureka, and flown to the San Francisco Bay Area, where they began offering sightseeing flights. In early April 2010, I got a call from my mom saying that she had seen in the paper that they were down in San Diego for the day and asking, did I want to go on a flight with my dad? Well, I took her up on the offer, and that same day I got a chance to fly in a real live Zeppelin, something not many li living people can say they've done. We met the Eureka at Brownfield near the U.S.-Mexico border south of San Diego. Normally, they adjust the buoyancy of the NT to be slightly negative, so that it wants to gently drop toward the ground when it's not moving forward or getting any vertical thrust from the props. When it landed to disembark the previous load of passengers and take us aboard, the ground crew had us do a one-off, one-on shuffle to keep the overall weight about the same. Once we were all on board, we took off and headed off over San Diego. Because we weren't moving that fast, everybody got a chance to hang their head out the open window like a happy Labrador retriever, and in the very back of the gondola, there's this wide panoramic window that gives a 180-degree view to the rear. The NT is rated for single-pilot operation, so we all got a chance to sit in the right-hand seat in the cockpit if we wanted to, too. It's an all-glass digital instrument panel, of course, and it's very different from the nautical steering wheel on the original Zeppelins, and all the controls are fly-by-wire. Visibility underneath is exceptional, as you might imagine, but of course there's no way to see anything above you with the envelope there in the way. While it's not really quiet, it's certainly a lot less noisy than a commercial jet inside, or even a light airplane, and the ride is extremely smooth. So after what seemed like far too short a period of time, we were headed back to base, and what was probably the one and only time in my life when I'd ride in a Zeppelin was over. Unfortunately, Airship Ventures wasn't a commercial success, and they went out of business. I grew up reading popular mechanics and popular science magazines, and they'd have articles about the rebirth of the airship all the time. But it seems like the time of the lighter-than-air craft, for anything other than novelty's sake, is past. While they certainly have some very unique qualities that make them different than any other aircraft, the fact that they're as vulnerable to the wind as a dandelion puffball makes them impractical for much more than marketing purposes. Anyway, that's this week's podcast. Thanks for hanging with me through to the end. I hope you enjoyed getting a half hour closer to the end of the lockdown with me, and I look forward to bringing you more random thoughts next week. Until then, check out the previous episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. And I want to give a huge shout-out to Jeff2 on YouTube for providing the awesome bumper music. Now, his link is in the notes, so be sure to go have a listen. Have a good week! Try this, try